Chapter 22 of The Mysteries of Paris, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Mysteries of Paris, Volume 1 by Eugène Sue. History of David and Sicily. Mr. Willis, a rich Moroccan planter, settled in Florida, said Murphy, had discovered in one of his young black slaves, named David, who was employed in the infirmary attached to his dwelling, a very remarkable degree of intelligence, combined with a constant and deep commiseration for the sick poor, to whom he gave with the utmost attention and care the medicine ordered by the doctors, and moreover, so strong a prepossession for the study of botany, as applied to medicine, that without any tuition he had composed and classified a sort of flora of the plants, around the dwelling and the vicinity. The establishment of Mr. Willis, situated on the borders of the sea, was fifteen or twenty leagues from the nearest town, and the medical men of the district, ignorant as they were, gave themselves no great deal of care or trouble, in consequence of the long distance and the difficulty in procuring any means of conveyance. Desirous of remedying so extreme an inconvenience, in a country subject to violent epidemics, and to have at hand at all times a skilful practitioner, the colonist made up his mind to send David to France to learn surgery and medicine. Enchanted at this offer, the young black set out for Paris, and the planter paid all the expenses of his course of study. David, having for eight years studied with great diligence and remarkable effect, received the degree of surgeon and physician with the most distinguished success and then returned to America to place himself and his still under the direction of his master. But David ought to have considered himself free and emancipated, in fact and in law, when he set foot in France. David's loyalty is very rare. He had promised Mr. Willis to return, and he did so. He did not consider at his own the instruction which he had acquired with his master's money, and besides he hoped to improve morally as well as physically the sufferings of the slaves, his former companions. He trusted to become not only their doctor, but their firm friend and defender with the colonist. He must indeed be imbued with the most unflinching probity and the most intense love for his fellow creatures to return to a master, an owner, after having spent eight years in the midst of the society of the most democratic young man in Europe. Judge of the man by this one trait. While he returned to Florida and, truth to tell, was used by Mr. Willis with consideration and kindness, eating at his table, sleeping under his roof. But this colonist was as stupid, malvolent, selfish and despotic as most creoles are, and he thought himself very generous in giving David 600 francs a year salary. At the end of some months, a terrible typhus fever broke out in the plantation. Mr. Willis was attacked by it, but soon restored through the careful attentions and efficacious remedies of David. Out of thirty negroes dangerously affected by this fatal disease, only two perished. Mr. Willis, much gratified by the services which David had so auspiciously rendered, raised his wages to twelve hundred francs to the extreme gratification of the black doctor whose fellows regarded him as a divinity amongst them, for he had with much difficulty, it is true, 
obtained from their master some few indulgences, and was hoping to procure still more. In the meanwhile, he consoled these poor people, and exhorted them to patience. Speak to them of God, who watches over the black and the white man with an equal eye, of another word, not peopled with masters and slaves, but with the just and the unjust, of another life in eternity, where man was no longer the beast of burden, the property, the thing of his fellow man, but where the victims of this world were so happy that they prayed in heaven for their tormentors. What shall I tell you more to those unhappy wretches who, contrary to other men, count with bitter joy the hours which bring them nearer to the tomb, to those unfortunate creatures who looked forward only to nothingness hereafter? David breathed the language and the hope of a free and happy immortality, and their chains appeared less heavy and their toe less irksome. He was their idol. A year passed away in this manner. Amongst the handsomest of the female slaves at the house was a Matisse about fifteen years of age, named Cecily, and for this poor girl Mr. Willis took a fancy. For the first time in his life his advances were repulsed and obstinately resisted. Cecily was in love, and with David, who during the late fearful distemper had attended her with the most vigilant care. Afterwards, a deep and mutual love repaid him the depth of gratitude. David's taste was too refined to allow him to boast of his happiness before the time when he should marry Cecily, which was to be when she had turned her sixteenth year. Mr. Willis, ignorant of their love, had thrown his handkerchief right royally at the pretty Matisse, and she, in deep despair, sought David and told him all the brutal attempts that she had been subjected to and with difficulty escaped. The black confronted her and instantly went to Mr. Willis to request her hand in marriage. Diablo, my dear Murphy, I can easily surmise the answer of the American Sultan. He refused? He did. He said he had an inclination for the girl himself, that in his life before he had never experienced the repulse of a slave, he meant to possess her, and he would. David might choose another wife or mistress, whichsoever might best suit his inclination. There were on the plantation ten tapus or metis as pretty as Cecily. David talked of his love, love so long and tenderly shared, and the planter shrugged his shoulders. David urged, but it was all in vain. The Creole had the cruel impudence to tell him that it was a bad example to see a master concede to a slave and that he would not set that example to satisfy a caprice of David's. He entreated, supplicated, and his master lost his temper. David, blushing to humiliate himself further, spoke in a firm tone of his services and disinterestedness, that he had been contented with a very slender salary. Mr. Willis was desperately enraged, and telling him he was a contumacious slave, threatened him with the chain. David replied with a few bitter and violent words, and two hours afterwards, bound to a stake, his chin was torn with the lash, whilst they bore Cecily to the harem of the planter in his sight. The conduct of the planter was brutal and horrible. It was added an absurdity to cruelty, for he must after that have required the man's services. Precisely so, for that very day the very fury into which he had worked himself joined to the drunkenness in which the brute indulged every evening, brought on an inflammatory attack of the most dangerous description. 
the symptoms of which appeared with rapidity peculiar to such affections. The planter was carried to his bed in a state of the highest fever. He sent off an express for a doctor, but he could not reach his abode in less than six and thirty hours. Really, this attack seems providential. The desperate condition of the man was quite deserved by him. The malady made fearful strides. David only could save the colonist, but Willis, distrustful as all evildoers are, imagined that the black would revenge himself by administrating poison, for after having scourged him with a rod, he had thrown him into prison. At last, horrified at the progress of his illness, broken down by a bodily anguish, and thinking that as death also stared him in the face, he had one chance left and trusted to the generosity of his life. After many distrusting doubts, Willis ordered David to be unchained. And David saved the planter? For five days and five nights, he watched and tended him as if he had been his father, contracting the disease step by step with great skill and perfect knowledge, until at last he succeeded in defeating it. To the extreme surprise of the doctor who had been sent for, and who did not arrive until the second day. And when restored to health at last, the colonist, not desiring to blush before his own slave, whose presence constantly oppressed him with the recollection of his excessive nobleness of conduct, the colonist made an enormous sacrifice to attach the daughter he had sent for to his establishment. David was again conducted to his dungeon. Horrible, but by no means astonishing. David must have been in the eyes of his brutal master a complete living remorse. Such conduct was dictated alike by revenge and jealousy. The blacks of Mr. Willis loved David with all the warmth of gratitude, for he had saved them body and soul. They knew the care he had bestowed on him when he lay tossing with fever between life and death and shaken off the deadening apathy which ordinarily besets slavery. These unfortunate creatures evinced their indignation, or rather grief, most powerfully when they saw David lacerated by the whip. Mr. Willis, deeply exasperated, affected to discover in this manifestation the appearance of revolt, and when he considered the influence which David had acquired over the slaves, he believed him capable of placing himself at the head of a rebellion to avenge himself of his wrongs. This fear was another motive with the colonist for using David in the most shameful manner and entirely preventing him from effecting the malicious designs of which he suspected him. Considering him as actuated by an impressible amount of terror, this conduct seems less stupid but quite as ferocious. A short time after these events, we arrived in America. Monseigneur had frightened a Danish brig at St. Thomas's, and we visited incognito all the settlements of the American coast, along which we were sailing. We were most hospitably received by Mr. Willis, who the evening after our arrival, after he had been drinking, and as much from the excitement of wine as from a desire to boast, told us in a horrid tone of brutal jesting the history of David and Sicily. I forgot to say that after having maltreated the girl, he had thrown her into a dungeon also, as a punishment for her disdain of him. His Royal Highness, on hearing Willis's fearful narration, thought the man was either drunk or a liar. But he was drunk. It was no lie. 
to remove any and all doubt, the colonist rose from the table and desired the slave to be a lantern and conduct us to David's cell. Well, what followed? In my life I never saw so distressing a spectacle. Pale, one meager, half-naked, and covered with wounds, David and the unhappy girl chained by the middle of the body, one at one end and the other at the other end of the dungeon, looked like spectres. The lantern that lighted us threw over the scene a still more ghastly hue. David did not utter a word when he saw us. His gaze was fixed and fearful. The colonist said to him with cruel irony, Well, doctor, how goes it? You who are so clever, why don't you chew yourself? The black replied by a noble word and a dignified gesture. He raised his right hand slowly, his forefinger pointed to the roof, and without looking at the colonist said in a solemn tone, God, and then was silent. God, replied the planter, bursting into a loud fit of laughter. Tell him then, tell God to come and snatch you from my power, I defy him. Then Willis, overcome by fury and intoxication, shook his fist to heaven and said in blasphemous language, Yes, I defy God to carry off my slaves before they are dead. The man was mad as well as brutal. We were utterly disgusted. Monseigneur did not say a word, and we left the cell. This dungeon was situated, as well as the house, on the seashore. We returned to our brig, which was more the short distance off, and at one o'clock in the morning, when all in the building were plunged in profound sleep, Monseigneur went on shore with eight men well armed, and going straight to the prison, burst open the doors and freed David and Cecily. The two victims were carried on board so quietly that they were not perceived, and then Monseigneur and I went to the planter's house. Strange contrast, these men torture their slaves and yet do not take any precaution against them, but sleep with doors and windows open. We easily got access to the sleeping room of the planter, which was lighted on the inside by a small glass lamp. Monseigneur awakened the man, who sat upright on his bed, his brain still disturbed by the effect of his drunkenness. You have tonight defied God to carry off your two victims before their death, and he has taken them, said Monseigneur. Then taking a bag which I carried, and which contained twenty-five thousand francs gold, he threw it on the fellow's bed and added, This will indemnify you for the loss of your two slaves. To your violence that destroys, I oppose a violence that saves. God will judge between us. We then retreated, leaving Mr. Willis stupefied, motionless, and believing himself under the influence of a dream. A few minutes later, we were again on board the brig, which instantly set sail. It appears to me, my dear Murphy, that His Royal Highness overpaid the wretch for the loss of his slaves, for, in fact, they would no longer belong to him. We calculated, as nearly as we could, the expense which his studies had cost for eight years, and then the price thrice over of himself and Cecily as slaves. Our conduct was contrary to the rights of property, I know, but if you had seen in what a horrible state we found this unfortunate and half-dead couple, if you had heard the sacrilegious defiance 
on moustache and the face of the Almighty by this man, drunk with wine and ferocity, you would comprehend how Monseigneur desired, as he said, on this occasion to act as it were in behalf of Providence. All this is as assailable and as justifiable as the punishment of the schoolmaster, my worthy squire. And had not this adventure any consequences? It could not. The brig was under Danish colours. The incognito of his royal highness was closely kept. We were taken for rich Englishmen. To whom could Willis have addressed his complaints if he had any to make? In fact, he had told us himself, and the medical man of Monseigneur declared it in a procès-verbal, that the two slaves could not have lived eight days longer in this frightful dungeon. It required the greatest possible care to snatch David and Sicily from almost certain death. At last they were restored to life. From this period David has been attached to the suite of Monseigneur as a medical man and is most devotedly attached to him. David married Sicily, of course, on arrival in Europe. This marriage, which ought to have been followed by results so happy, took place in the chapel of the palace of Monseigneur, but by a most extraordinary revulsion of conduct, hardly was she in the full enjoyment of an unhoped-for position, when forgetting all that David had suffered for her and what she had suffered for him, blushing in the new world to be wedded to a black, Cecily, seduced by a man of most depraved morals, committed her first fault. It would seem as though the natural perversity of this abandoned woman, having till then slumbered, was suddenly awakened and developed itself with fearful energy. You know the rest and all the scandal of the adventures that followed. After having been two years a wife, David, whose confidence in her was only equalled by his love, learned the full extent of her infamy, thunderbolt roused him from his blind security. They say he tried to kill his wife. Yes, but through the interference of Monseigneur, he consented to allow her to be immured for life in a prison, and it is thence that Monseigneur now seeks to have her released, to your great astonishment as well as mine, my dear Baron. But it is growing late, and His Royal Highness is anxious that your courier should start for Gerolstein with as little delay as possible. In two hours' time he shall be on the road. So now, my dear Murphy, farewell till the evening. Till the evening, adieu. Have you then forgotten that there is a grand ball at the embassy, and that His Royal Highness will be present? True, I have always forgotten that, since the absence of Colonel Vernet and the Count Darnay, I have the honour to fulfil the functions of Chamberlain and aide-de-camp. Ah, à propos of the Count and the Colonel, when may we expect their return? Will they have soon completed their respective missions? You know that Monseigneur will keep them away as long as possible, that he may enjoy more solitude and liberty. As to the errand of which His Royal Highness has employed each of them as an ostensible motive for getting rid of them in a quiet way, sending one to Avignon and the other to Strasbourg, I will tell you all about it some day when we are both in a dull mood, for I will defy the most hypochondriacal person in existence not to burst with laughter at the narrative as well as with certain passages in the dispatches of these worthy gentlemen, 
who have assumed their pretended missions with so serious an air. To tell the truth, I have never clearly understood why His Royal Highness attached the Colonel and the Count to his private person. Why, my dear fellow, is not Colonel Vernet the accurate type of military perfection? Is there in the whole Germanic Confederation a more elegant figure, more flourishing and splendid moustache, and a more complete military figure? And when he is fully decorated, screwed in, uniformed, gold-laced, plumed, etc., etc., it is impossible to see a more glorious, self-satisfied, proud, handsome animal. True, but it is his very good looks that prevent him from having the appearance of a man of refined and acute intellect. Well, and Monseigneur says that, thanks to the colonel, he is in the habit of finding even the dullest people in the world bearable, before certain audiences, which are of necessity, he shuts himself up with the colonel for a half hour or so, then leaves him full of spirits and light as air, quite ready to meet bulls and defy them. Just as the Roman soldier who, before a forced march, used to sole his sandals with lead, and so found all fatigue light by leaving them off, I now discover the usefulness of the colonel. But the Cantarnay is also very serviceable to our dear Lord for always hearing at his side the tinkling of his old cracked bell, shining and chattering, continually seeing this soap bubble so puffed up with nothingness, so magnificently variegated, and as such portraying the theatrical and puerile face of sovereign power, his royal highness feeds the most sensibly the vanity of those barren pumps and glories of the word, and by contrast has often derived the most serious and happy ideas from the contemplation of his useless and patron chambling. Well, well, but let us be just, my dear Murphy. Tell me in what court in the world would you find a more perfect model of a chambling? Who knows better than the old Darnay the numberless rules and strict observances of etiquette, who bees with more becoming demeanor and enameled cross around his neck, or more majestically comports himself, when the keys of office are suspended from his shoulders. A propos, Baron, Monseigneur declares that the shoulders of a chamberlain have a peculiar physiognomy. That is, he says, an appearance at once constrained and repulsive, which it is painful to look at, for alas and alack a day, it is at the back of a chamberlain that the symbol of his office glitters, and as Monseigneur avers, the worthy Darnay always seemed tempted to present himself backwards, that his importance may at once be seen, felt, and acknowledged. The fact is, that the incessant subject of the Count's meditations is to ascertain by what fatal imagination and direction a chamberlain's key has been placed behind the chamberlain's back for it is related of him that he said, with his accustomed good sense, and with a kind of bitter grief, what the devil, one does not open a door with, with one's back, at all events. Baron the courrier, the courrier, said Murphy, pointing to the clock, sad old reprobate to make me chatter thus, it is your fault, 
Present my respects to his royal highness, said Monsieur de Grauw, taking his hat up in haste. And now adieu till the evening, my dear Murphy. Till the evening, my dear Baron. Fare well. It will be late before we meet, for I am sure that Monseigneur will go this very day to pay a visit to the mysterious house in the Rue du Temple. End of chapter 22